these two chapters are um, particular for Christians uh, who know the subtext to these stories. Uh, these two chapters are probably the two most powerful chapters in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe for obvious, obvious reasons. Let me say um, a couple words before we look at the text. Uh, some of you that maybe taught English pre-retirement, you'll get into what I'm getting ready to say. The rest of you, you can just doze for a couple minutes. Um, C.S. Lewis was adamant that his chronicles are not allegories. Now, if you know what an allegory is, that means that everything in the story stands for something else. Uh, for instance, I hear preachers who love to allegorize uh, Jesus's parables. And I'm not sure that's the best way to use Jesus' parables. But let's say if you want to allegorize one of Jesus' parables. Let's say if you want to allegorize uh, the, the Good Samaritan. Well, to, to teach the Good Samaritan as an allegory, you would say, you know, um, uh, the Jew symbolizes all of us on the journey of life. That long and winding road between Jerusalem and Jericho symbolizes the long and winding road of life. The bandits that... Uh, the Jewish person coming from Jerusalem fell amongst, symbolizes all the trials of this world, the sickness and disease and the violence. Um, the priest symbolizes all the pastors in the world, the religious authorities. The Levites, since they led music at the temple, they symbolize all the people who love music and who want to control the world through the controlling of music. You go on and on and on. Um, that's allegorizing. That's where everything in the story or everything in the text points to something else. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis was adamant, are not allegories. If you try to make everything in the story point to something in Jesus, uh, yeah, you might drive yourself a little bit crazy. Uh, now, he is obvious. There are parallels. There are parallels uh, between what you read in the Chronicles and what you read in the Gospels. C.S. Lewis actually made up a word to describe uh, Chronicles of Narnia. He called them he called them supposals. You know, the line, the witch, and the wardrobe is a supposal. You know, let's suppose that God became incarnate, not here, but in Narnia. How might God become incarnate in Narnia? Aslan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's parallels. There's not parallels for everything. Like we talked about last week when we, when I spoke a little bit about the, um, the, um, the overcoats, the coats, the fur coats that they put on when they went through the wardrobe. You know, we can talk about maybe that symbolizes baptism because there are parallels throughout here. But also, those coats just might be coats. That's a way for them to stay warm in a cold country where it's winter. So uh, in, in an allegory, everything stands for something else. Uh, he is adamant. Chronicles of Narnia are not that way. Uh, so uh, enjoy it as a story. You will see a lot of parallels with the Christian story. Um, and again, he was adamant that part of what he was doing was so when children read this or have these stories read to them, when they get older 
and they, you know, they don't have to go to children's church or something, and they get to sit through worship, and they start hearing the readings from the gospel, it, it will sound familiar to them. It will sound familiar to them. There'll be connections there. Anyways, so uh, obviously in chapters 14 and 15, a lot of parallels with what we would call Holy Week in the life of uh, Jesus. Uh, not, not allegory. There's not everything you see in these stories doesn't have a parallel somewhere. Uh, you know, you can't say that the um, the dryads or the dyads uh, that's Caiaphas and the high priest. You know, you can't do stuff like that with everything in the story. But there are parallels, and I think the parallels, particularly if you are coming from the Christian faith, the parallels are obvious to you in the text. So, um, yeah, don't try to allegorize everything in the, te- in the text. By the way, C.S. Lewis did write one famous allegory. The first uh, thing he wrote after he became Christian was uh, a work that I probably don't recommend unless you are thoroughly immersed in Western civilization and Western literature. But the very first thing that C.S. Lewis wrote was called The Pilgrim's Regress, which, of course, is based on what? Pilgrim's Progress, which used to be the second most read book among Christians in the Western civilization after the Bible. But particularly if you don't know Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, um, and you don't know Western literature, yeah, Pilgrim's Regress is going to be tedious and tormenting to you. But uh, that is an allegory. Everything in Pilgrim's Regress stands for something else stands for something else. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Mother Kirk. You got Mother Kirk in Pilgrim's Regress. Well, of course, Kirk is the Scottish word for what? Church. So guess who Mother Kirk is? So that's an allegory. We can do that with everything in the text. Uh, you can't really do that with Chronicles of Narnia, but there are a lot of parallels. Let's look at the two chapters. Uh, I, I'm almost hesitant to even make many editorial remarks on these chapters because uh, they're so powerful and they evoke so many memories for Christians that uh, they, they sort of editorialize themselves. Chapter 14 is called The Triumph of the Witch. Evil is going to have its day. So you notice they're there at Baruna. You learn that in this chapter, the place where they're located is Baruna. In the other Chronicles of Narnia, they'll talk about the battle at Baruna. Well, that's the battle you're going to see later at this spot. They're at Baruna. They have to leave that area because that's where the stone table is. And Aslan says, because remember he had the meeting last week, uh, last chapter, he had the meeting with the White Witch. Well, here at the beginning of this chapter, he says, we've got to leave this area because uh, this area, that stone table, is going to be used for other purposes. Now, Aslan knows what the other purpose is going to be. They, they need to vacate. Um, it has something to do with what he has arranged with the White Witch, uh, the other purpose that that stone table is going to be used for. So they have a meal. Uh, C.S. Lewis likes his food. They have a meal, and they start walking away at an at a easy pace. Uh, there's a sadness that's coming over Aslan, and as a result of a sadness coming over Aslan, uh, there's a sadness that comes over his followers. Uh, as he walks with them, he starts giving them instructions, giving them instructions for the battle. 
Again, C.S. Lewis um, is de- devoted Orthodox Christian, so he knows we are co-regents with Christ. We are co-agents with Christ. Christ does his work for us, with us, through us. Um, being an Orthodox Christian, particularly of the Anglican persuasion, he believes that God has a plan, but that we have free will. You've got to put those together somehow. Um, God has the ultimate overriding plan, but you're going to have to fight some battles. He's going to equip you. He's given you instructions, but you're going to have to fight some battles. Some of the battles that are going to be fought, you'll have to be involved with. Aslan's not going to take care of all your battles just, you know, by using the angels or something. Uh, so there is a plan, but there is free will. Most contemporary Christians have a really hard time holding those two together. And I'll admit it's not easy. That's been one of the primary tasks of Christian theology for the last 2,000 years, that God has a plan, but you have free will. Anyway, so they're walking away from Baruna. Sadness begins to envelop them. He's talking to them. Aslan's talking to them about, about fighting the battle. And, of course, um, Peter says, but you will be there yourself, Aslan, right? I can give you no promise of that, answered Aslan. Anyways, so they walk. Um, Your author says that it's Susan and Lucy who see the most of him, Aslan, as they walk. Susan and Lucy are going to have preeminence in these chapters. They walk. um, There is sort of a sadness that's coming on on Aslan, more so as he walks. They, um, they kind of get to their spot where they're going to spend the night. And again, on page 147, and I think all of our editions are probably the same, on page 147, they have a supper. Your text says there's a supper that evening. Now, again, it's not allegory. Everything doesn't stand for something, but sometimes C.S. Lewis slips up. You see the word supper capitalized. They have a supper that evening, and it was a quiet meal. So after they have a supper that evening, um, they try to go to sleep. Susan and Lucy cannot sleep. They finally realize they're both awake. They both have a most horrible feeling. Um, And they know that, or they feel, that there's something to do about Aslan something dreadful about Aslan. So, um, and they remember what he said about he may not be with them when they go into the battle that's to come. So they kind of walk outside. And when they walk outside, they see Aslan slowly walking away from the camp into the wood. And they follow him. Now, you remember the gospel story. You know, um, there's Gethsemane, where some of the disciples were with Jesus. There's the cross, where only women and John were with Jesus. Here, two two women, two girls, Susan and Lucy, begin to follow. Um, they they say that he 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 looks he looks different in the moonlight. Moonlight is usually a symbol in literature of foreboding. Again, moon, lunar, lunacy, all that's connected in Western civilization. So, um, you know, that he looks tired, he looks um, sad. Uh, then they, um, 
they kind of catch up with them. And he says to them that they that he will be glad for their company tonight. You should start thinking Gethsemane here. Um, anyway, he wants some company. Look at the bottom of page 149. Let me read a little bit. Forward they went again, and one of the girls walked on each side of the line. But how slowly he walked. But, and his great royal head drooped, so that he, his nose nearly touched the grass. Presently he stumbled, and he gave a low moan. Aslan, dear Aslan, said Lucy, what, what is wrong? Can't you tell us? Are you ill, dear Aslan, said Lucy? No, said Aslan. I am sad and lonely. Lay your hands on my mane so that I can feel you are there, and let us walk like that. Again, thank Gethsemane. So um, continue on with that. And so the girls did what they would never have dared to do without his permission, but what they had longed to do ever since they had first saw him. They buried their cold hands in the beautiful sea of fur and stoked it, and so doing walked with him. And presently they saw that they were going with him up the slope of the hill on which the stone table stood. They went up at the side where the trees came furthest up, and when they got to the last tree, it was the one that had some bushes about it. Aslan stopped and said, Oh, children, children, here you must stop, and whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And both the girls cried bitterly, though they hardly knew why, and they clung to the line and kissed his mane and his nose and his paws and his great sad eyes. Then he turned from them and walked out onto the top of the hill, and Lucy and Susan, crouching in the bushes, looked after him, and this is what they saw. And so what they saw, of course, that great crowd of evil evil creatures gathered around the witch, white witch, there at the stone table. You, this, all those powers of darkness that have come together. You notice during this whole section, when he kind of goes up the hill and gives himself to the white witch and those powers. He makes no resistance at all. He, he gives himself to them. If you look on page 152, and it probably is page 152, you, you see um, um, Pauline Bain's sketch of all the chaos there around the white witch. Uh, you see the white witch at the top of the picture. She's sort of standing on the stone table. One thing that I think Pauline Bain wants you to notice, turn back to page 127 for just a second. And it probably is 127. That's the sketch that Pauline Baines did of um, Aslan with his creatures around him. And if you just compare those two sketches, I think Pauline Baines did a masterful job of showing you the chaos and confusion and foreboding and evil of the crowd there gathered around the White Witch compared to almost the serenity and the joy of um, the crowd gathered around Aslan on page 127. I think Pauline Baines intends you to pay attention to those two almost side by side. So anyway, they've got Aslan. They get Aslan. Um, they're tormenting Aslan. Um, Aslan, again, makes no noise. He brings no resistance. Look at the bottom of page 153. Let me read a little bit more. 
Lucy's watching. Lucy and Susan are watching from a distance. Which, by the way, that's exactly what the Gospels say the women did when Jesus was crucified. They watched from a distance. Anyway, uh, last paragraph, page 153. Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes, the brutes, for now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Muzzled him, said the witch. And even now as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But Aslan never moved. He's giving himself up to this. Aslan never moved. And this seemed to enrage all the rabble. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him, even after he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was the surra- he, he was surrounded by the whole crowd of evil creatures, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, jeering at him. Again, think about the trials of Jesus, the mocking, the torment what both some of the uh, temple priests and some of the high priests and the Roman guards did to Jesus. Anyway, and then they, they, they bind him, they tie him. Uh, at, at the end of the chapter, look at page 155. At last she drew near. Here's the death. At last the white witch drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, and now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor, Edmund? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact as the law, as the deep magic uh, requires, instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you will not save his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. So there you see the death of Aslan. Um, A little bit of theology here for a moment. Uh, Here it's pretty clear. uh, Aslan is giving himself up to satisfy the deep magic, the pact with the witch. Uh, If you were to do Christian theology at this point, you would say, Uh, This is sort of the ransom theory of the atonement. Uh, Jesus paid the price. Jesus fulfilled the law's demands. Jesus fulfilled the the justice of the deep magic. Now, you're going to learn that there's a deeper magic still. But this is the magic that is the, the surface magic, the deep magic. He fulfills the requirements. Uh, we do call that in Christian theology, uh, the, uh, as far as an atonement theory, the word atonement means at-one-ment. We all agree in the Christian tradition that Jesus died for us. Now, again, you need to unpack your terms. What does that mean? 
Jesus died for us. Well, we've been cogitating over that for the last couple thousand years, particularly using the writings of St. Paul. So we have, we have developed what we call the theories of the atonement. Um, there's truth in all these theories. There's biblical precedence for all these theories. Uh, the theory of the ransom, the price was paid. Uh, the ransom was either paid to the devil who had possession of you because of your sin, or ransom was paid to God to satisfy the judgment of justice of God. That's the ransom theory. Another theory is substitutionary atonement theory, the substitutionary theory, which means he, he just stood in your place. He, he received what you should have received. There's similarities between that and the ransom theory. Uh, another theory, and we've continued to make other theories out of this. These are your three prevailing ones. Those of you that um, kind of went through John R. W. Stott's The Cross of Christ with me in your unity group, this should all be ringing a bell. Another one of those theories is, is uh, the moral influence theory. Now, the moral influence theory is loved by... Um, liberal theologians. The moral influence theory says the death of Jesus just inspires you, maybe supernaturally inspires you, to live sacrificially, to live with that kind of love. That's the moral influence theory. Um, the church history, Peter Abelard in the Middle Ages, remember the one who had the affair with Heloise, the nun? Peter Abelard uh, loved the moral influence theory. Anselm loved the substitutionary theory. Now, so there's all these theories, and there's some warrant, there's scriptural background for all these theories. Paul usually just satisfies himself by saying Christ died for us. Now, C.S. Lewis has been helpful with me on this one. Uh, C.S. Lewis acknowledges that you have to deal with the Bible. You can't just make up on your own what Jesus did and why he did it and what it all means. You know, but you look at the Bible, yeah, there's ransom language, there's substitutionary language, and there's even some moral influence language there. Um, now, what, and C.S. Lewis, in the last thing he had published for his death, it actually was published after his death, a fascinating little book called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. He deals with theology from a very practical point of view there. He says, yeah, there's a lot of differing atonement theories. Usually in our hymns, we just satisfy ourselves by pointing to the death of Christ. Christ died for us. Somehow Christ did something for us we can't do for ourselves. Somehow Christ accomplished something for us. Somehow Christ accomplished something for us cosmically and eternally. We, we, we know that. We see that. Now, C.S. Lewis, when he, when he starts dealing with the different atonement theories, he says, well... There's probably truth. There certainly is truth in all of them. Um, but the good thing is you don't have to figure all that out. And C.S. Lewis, in a reference to the Lord's Supper, he said, Jesus said, take, eat. Jesus did not say, take and understand. So um, just make a whole lot out of the cross of Christ. You know, you'll never plumb the depths of the cross of Christ. Just know that God in Christ did something for you that you cannot do for yourself. Sometimes I like to talk about how Christ's death on the cross saved us in so many ways. Saves us from sin, death, the devil. Saves us from ourselves. 
we are redeemed because we're in desperate need of redemption. You know, you didn't get thrown out of your mother's womb fully, fully blossomed. We are born in need of redemption. That's why I baptize babies in my tradition. That's why the historic church baptizes babies, because they're sinful little creatures and they need Jesus. And we're so glad Jesus made provision for them. And they'll learn that. They'll grow into their faith. But um, whatever, Jesus had to do something. And he's not just a, um, he, he's not just a, a self-help theory. He's not just something to motivate you to do something. Um, that's the problem with the moral influence theory. It kind of boils down to that on some days. He just influences you to do something. Uh, what we've consistently agreed on in the Christian faith is we don't understand the depths of the death of Christ. We know that we have to embrace it. We have to experience it. It's got to be the center of our life. He has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. I don't know exactly how the death of Aslan saved Edmund, but it's certain he did. It's certain that he did. It did. And C.S. Lewis says, again, you don't have to take and understand. You take and eat. You better make sure that cross, the work of Christ, is at the center of your life. He, you acknowledge on a minute-by-minute basis your gratitude that he's done something for you that you cannot do for yourself. He went up there and got on the stone tab- table by himself. He did it. He willingly gave himself. He allowed himself. He yielded to it. He marched right into the center of evil for us. And that somehow that has conquered evil, sin, death, and the grave. So um, that's just a little theological aside, particularly in the Chronicles of Narnia. Because C.S. Lewis is an Orthodox Christian, he does lean toward a theory of the, of ra- the ransom theory of the atonement, the substitutionary death of Jesus. Somehow he took our place. He's not just... I mean, if he's, if he's just giving you an example to follow... Go read the story of Martin Luther King Jr. We have a lot of martyrs in the world. If you just need a martyr to motivate you to do right, or a martyr to give motivate you to give your life for a cause, we have lots of examples of that. Um, we've got to move beyond just the, the moral influence theory of the atonement. That's why, by the way, Abelard was declared a heretic. We've got to move beyond. It's, that, it's in there. It's in there. You know, hopefully that, you know, living with the cross kind of makes you live a cruciform life and you live a little more sacrificially. But don't stop there. Somehow he did something for you. It's not just a self-help theory uh, to help you live a certain way. Anyway, Aslan dies. Aslan allows himself to die. Somehow he's going to call it eventually the deeper deeper magic is going to um, trump the deep magic. Maybe the gospel... The law of grace is going to trump the law of justice. But deep magic is going to be trumped by deeper magic. Anyway, he dies. And that's how the chapter ends. Again, you notice how C.S. Lewis does his writing in this stuff. He always ends a chapter with a cliffhanger. He ends a chapter with one foot in the next chapter. So turn the page. And notice the title of this chapter is Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. Aslan knew about the deeper magic. The wicked witch didn't. She was the fool. She didn't know that there's a greater magic than just that that law that said traitors belong to the witch. She knew that law, but Aslan knew of a deeper law, deeper magic. Anyway, so you turn the page. The girls are still kind of hiding in the bushes, 
and then um, the evil, evil, evil horde rushes past. You see the picture of the evil, evil, evil horde um, on page 57 rushing past. Do you see at least one of the girls down in the bushes underneath the evil horde? You have to look good. Some people see two girls. I see one usually. Most of us see one. You got to look closely to see the see Lucy and Susan hiding there in the bushes as the evil evil horde passes passes by. But anyway, they're hiding in the bushes. The evil horde passes by. Um, you do notice there's a snake in that evil horde. The evil horde passes by. Uh, let me start reading on page 157, right under the sketch of the evil horde. They've passed by now. As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out onto the open hilltop. The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bonds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face, stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it, and and cried till they could cry no more. You're going to see in this chapter, C.S. Lewis knew grief. Now, he has not met Joy Davidman, so he's not been married. He's not had the death of his wife. But do you remember the grief that formed and informed C.S. Lewis's whole life in some ways was the grief of his mother, grief over the death of his mother when he was age nine. He said his whole world changed. His mother died at age nine, and his distant father became more distant after the death of his mother. But you'll notice in this chapter, C.S. Lewis knows grief. He's going to learn more about grief after he marries Joy Davidman and she dies with cancer. That's when he writes his uh, classic, Grief Observed. But you're going, you're going to notice he knows something about grief. Anyway, they cried till they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again and then again were silent. You can turn the page. Um, You're told some more about their grief. Um, Again, notice the third paragraph. Again, C.S. Lewis knows grief. Notice how he describes the girl's grief. I hope no one, this really is him, the narrator, describing it. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt to these two hours, and hours seemed to go by in the dead calm, and they hardly noticed they were getting colder and colder. But last, Lucy noticed two other things. Anyway, you see another portrayal of grief there. Um, Just another aside, I've touched on a couple times. He's going to touch on it again in this chapter. C.S. Lewis wrote in some of his essays on writing and literature, do not shield your children away from the harsh realities. Let them read Grimm's fairy tales. Let them read the Bible. Let them read about Goliath's head getting chopped off, cut off by by David. Let them, you know, don't sanitize all children's literature. That was even a movement beginning in his day. He and G.K. Chesterton, who died 
who was sort of early in uh, St. Louis's life, a great, another great thinker, they both wrote about, do not shield your children um, from, from the harsh realities of life. Um, this book would not be allowed in a lot of schools because it gets, if you think this is bad, read the last one, The Last Battle, which is interesting. The Last Battle is the only one of these books that won a children's award in the 1950s. If you think this book is, has some darkness in it, go read The Last Chronicle, The Last Battle, a children's book. But he was adamant that you don't shield children. Now, what he did say was, don't shield children because they need to know that life is about, in many ways, a battle between good and evil. Now, what he did say, because he, what he does, is give them, show them plenty of examples of goodness and of good winning. But don't just say they, you know, uh, they can't read Little, uh, Little, uh, Little Red Riding Hood because of what the evil things that witch, that, that, what is it? Wolf. I knew it wasn't a fox. What that wolf does. Um, yeah, you know, let your kids read Little Red Riding Hood. He was already writing, because again, his daytime job was a literature professor. He was already writing, you know, why you should not sanitize your children's literature. Um, he's going to, I'll show another little jab at that. He takes a minute. But notice the mice show up. They start nibbling away the cords of Aslan's um, bondage. Uh, you'll learn later, because I hope, hope you do read all the Chronicles, you'll learn later um, that as a result of this act of kindness to Aslan, the mice become talking mice. They're not talking here. But that's, that's the uh, background to Reepicheep, one of my favorite characters in the Chronicle of Narnia. The um, um, the uh, martial, brave soldier mouse that will show up in the, in Prince Caspian, but uh, all the mice get blessed because they uh, they come to um, show love to Aslan at this point. Anyway, then it's morning. They start walking away from dead, but though unbound now, dead Aslan. They start walking. Look on page one sixty one. They're walking away, still in great grief. They've cried themselves out. They're walking away in great grief. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise. Notice the text says, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that, said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. And notice where they go. They go to the exact same place mentally that Mary Magdalene goes in John chapter 20 when she, you know, she, when she couldn't find the body. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan around with her. The rising of the sun is morning. The rising of the sun had made everything, everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down from it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. As Christians, maybe you think about the earthquake that occurred at the crucifixion. As Christians, you might think about uh, the curtain in the temple being rent in two. Anyway, oh, 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 cried the two girls rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have... They might have left the body alone. 
Remember, that's almost the, kind of what Mary says. They've taken the body, is what Mary says when she sees the tomb empty. Um, Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes. And they know this is Aslan's voice. Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around, there shining in the sunrise larger than they had seen before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown back, grown again. Stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan? (laughs) said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. So then they keep, if you keep reading, they ask, what does all this mean? This is what we've been asking and preaching on for 2,000 years. What does all this mean? So notice what Aslan says. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, the law, there is a deeper magic still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, he was crucified before the foundation of the world. Remember that verse from the Bible? If if she could have looked back uh, before time dawned, she would have read there is a different incantation. She would have known that that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Um, That could preach for a long time, how his death dealt with the deaths before him and consequently dealt with the deaths afterwards. Those of us that come to church on Saturday before Easter, we talk about what it means he descended to the place of the dead. Or he descended to hell as the creed gets translated. Um, what did he do during his death? What did he do that allowed death to, that, that the conquering of death to um, work its way backwards? Anyway, anyway, then you see a romp. Um, they're all happy and joyful. Then um, they get on Aslan's back and they go on a long journey. He says, we got a journey to take. I want you to ride with me. Then one of the most interesting sentences in the Chronicles that, that have interested all, all of us that pay attention to what he's written is at the top of page 165. That ride, now this is Lucy and Susan on the back of Aslan after his resurrection. And you won't learn where he's going, but he's going to the witch's castle to give life to the statues, the creatures that have been turned to statues. Anyway, dealing with this ride at the top of the first paragraph on page 165, C.S. Lewis says, that ride was perhaps the most wonderful thing that happened to them in Narnia. Well, they've experienced resurrection. Yeah, go write your thesis on what he means by that. That this, he says, might, might be the most wonderful thing that they, that they, the girls, experienced while they were there. Uh, then let me wrap it up, then I'll go back and show you something else in a minute. Um, anyway, they say, where are we going, Aslan? He says, to the witch's home. Look at the last paragraph. Next, next moment, the whole world seemed to turn upside down. 
It's a quote from the book of Acts, by the way. And the children felt as if they had left their insides behind them, for the lion had gathered himself together for a greater leap than any he had made yet made and jumped, or you may call it flying rather than jumping, right over the castle wall. So there, again, we're starting into the next chapter. They, they go into the castle wall. The two girls, breathless but unhurt, found themselves tumbling off his back in the middle of a wide stone courtyard full of statues. So that's where we're going, we're going to leave them at. Um, yeah, your, your mind and your memory should go to a lot of places. Uh, one thing I did want to point out that I think I flew right over because it's just a kind of a funny, fun editorial remark that he makes. If you look on page 151, since I, since I raised the issue about not sanitizing children's literature, if you look on the top of page 151, this is when he's describing that great, great horde and cloud of evil creatures. Um, and, the, and the list of those evil creatures are amazing. Um, well, look, look at the list. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bullheaded men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants, and other creatures whom I won't describe, because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. <laughs> Yeah, he was already fighting that battle, saying you don't sanitize children's literature. And then the list continues. Cruels and hags and incubuses, wraiths, horrors, efreets, sprites, orkneys, woozies, and ittens. Anyway, some of that you learn from um, Western literature. Some of that you learn from um, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, and J.R.R. Tolkien, who those creatures are. But those are the evil creatures. But he doesn't describe them in depth because he's afraid some parents won't let their children read this book if he, dry, if he describes too closely what they look like. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's hard. That's the preacher, and he was not a preacher. He was not ordained. He, always, he said he was not a theologian, but most of us question that one. Um, but the preacher's in him. He can't help but make an interesting editorial aside sometimes in his writing. So... Put the Chronicle down and take your Bible. There's so many texts we go to. I tried to allude to a lot of texts from the Passion of Christ as we went through this text. But one text that I think is so much in the background of this is a text. It's a, it's a text that's in the background of the Passion of Christ. Because in a sense, Jesus knew that this text that I'm getting ready to take you to um, was his um, job description. Jesus was well aware that he was fulfilling this, he was intentional about fulfilling this. Anyway, it's Isaiah 53. This is one of those texts that we usually read, uh, usually on Good Friday, in the life of the church. And um, that's why even the children who read Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, they'll have an easier time understanding why we call it Good Friday, how the death of Jesus was good. Anyway, look at Isaiah 53. This is a prophecy 700 years before Jesus. It very much paints the picture of the crucifixion, and Jesus didn't know it to be his um, job description when he came as Messiah. Look at 53, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. You know, I've often thought as we read this on Good Friday, um, most people think we're just reading something out of the Gospels about the death of Jesus if we don't point out we're reading something that was written 700 years 
more than 700 years before Jesus. From the prophet Isaiah 53, 4 and following, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You know, people in other world religions will say to you, it makes no sense that someone else's suffering could benefit you. Someone else's suffering could save you. Someone else's suffering could atone for your sin. Our, our Jewish brothers and sisters gather in uh, synagogue ever Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, to spend the day fasting and prayer as they atone for their sins. They have a hard time understanding that we say we don't need to do that because someone else atoned for our sins. And they say, how can someone else atone for what you did? And then you say, let me tell you about Jesus, and we've been talking about it for 2,000 years, and we still haven't quite figured it out. Well, we just know someone else atoned for our sins. It's logical that we'd have to atone for our own sins. That's what all the other world religions tell us. It's logical we would have to atone for our own sins. You know, that we can't say somebody did something 2,000 years ago that atones for our sins. Uh, that's the gospel. That's the core of the Christian faith. Uh, yeah, um, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away every one to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And I think this is what's behind a lot of, the, of that that chapter in the line of the witch and wardrobe when he goes to the white when he goes to the white witch at the stone table he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth he didn't he didn't resist like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth he just yielded himself he he didn't have to he could have stopped it you know i grew up in a church where there's an old gospel hymn that said he could have called 10,000 angels come to his rescue. Yeah, he could have. Athlon could have too. Um, but he chose not to. He chose not to. For Edmund, for us, he chose not to. Um, yeah, I'm amazed in this modern world how people try to do Christianity without a crucifixion, without a substitutionary atonement. Um, you know, there are people who come at us, even from within the Christian faith, that say all of this stuff is bad, it makes us violent. I've had people lay the blame of the violence of the human race at the foot of the Christian community by saying we should lay it at the foot of the cross, saying that we have somehow glorified violence, therefore we are responsible. I mean, yeah, I can, if you're interested in a bibliography, I'd be glad to give you one. Um, yeah, they try to do Jesus in a way that totally eradicates a crucifixion. There was a book written recently called The Nonviolent Atonement. Yeah, I mean, like people want to sanitize children's books. Some people have tried hard to sanitize the Christian faith.
But yeah, they're at the core of the Christian faith is a crucified Savior. And there's no way around that. You've got to do something with that. You know, otherwise, go be Jewish or Muslim or something. Don't try to do Christianity without a crucifixion, Christianity without a crucified Lord. There's no way to do that. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for these people who are willing to come out on a summer morning to experience the riches of great literature, but more importantly, to experience the riches of your grace and the riches of the Christian faith. Help us be good ambassadors for the faith that we share. In the name of Jesus, our only Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great... Not in here next week, but I'd love to have you join me in the chapel.